Welcome to Spend, Donate, Invest. This is a podcast about lining up your politics and your money. For a lot of us, we vote, maybe we even protest, we might have organized people in our community. But I wonder sometimes if there's another untapped source of power that we have, specifically our money as individuals. That's really what this podcast is about, exploring that untapped power that we might have. So typically on this show, you'll find short episodes that are clear with gentle suggestions on ways that we might be able to gain a little bit more alignment in terms of our values and our money, whether that is how we shop, how we donate our money, how we invest, how we work, how we earn our money. It's really about all of those topics. Most episodes come from listener letters, and today is no exception. I received a letter from a listener asking how to build a more socially responsible organization. And that can apply whether you're building a business or you're building a nonprofit or any other type of organization. So there's a lot to talk about. I don't think we'll get through all of it today. I like to keep the episodes short and sweet on this show. So let's see how far we get today, and then we'll pick it up next time. When I was growing up, so I was thinking about this as I was researching for this episode, I was given the impression by the predominant culture in the United States that if you wanted to do good, you worked for a nonprofit. If you wanted to do business, you worked for a business. And these were two completely separate paths. You had to choose. Are you going to try to do good or are you going to try to make money? Now, this was in stark contrast to the way that I had observed my grandparents in Eritrea doing business, which was a little bit business, a little bit community development. At least that was the impression I got as a kid, was that if you were building something in your community, it was a member of the community or a part of the ecosystem, whether you were building a nonprofit or a business. You were just building a part of the community. So giving back was automatically baked in. Sustainability was automatically baked in, also in part because that was the predominant culture. But, you know, this felt like a different planet at that time. This was a whole continent away. These were mom and pop businesses. And at the time, I didn't realize that most Americans also work for small and medium sized businesses and that there could be parallels in the way that we get things done. And so I grew up in America feeling like, okay, well, eventually I'm going to have to make a choice whether I want to pursue making the world a better place or working for a business. Then in my early 20s, I discovered another option, a way to work for a business, but also to make the world a better place. The concept was called CSR. It stood for Corporate Social Responsibility, and the marketing was very attractive to me. <laughs> so the concept was that businesses obviously exist to make money, but could they also consider how they affect the world? Do they give back? That was how I mostly heard the concept being discussed at that time. Although the technical definition of corporate social responsibility is definitely wider, it's more encompassing, I personally just did not find a lot of companies 
who were deeply engaging on their actual responsibilities to society. Um, What I found, what I was reading, what I was seeing, who I was interviewing with at the time were companies who were committed to, quote unquote, giving back. And that meant making donations, sometimes encouraging employees to also make donations. Sometimes that meant the company was giving away money. Sometimes it meant giving away products or services. Sometimes it meant having employees go out and volunteer on the company's dime. You know, when I was researching for this episode, I remembered, and I hadn't thought about this in decades, that my dad's company used to set up these Habitat for Humanity volunteer days. And I remember attending some of those and working with my dad and his coworkers on some of those like volunteer days. So that was kind of my introduction to CSR, sort of like a add-on to the business. You know, the business is out here in the world making product services, and then they kind of on the side are trying to give away some time and money. As soon as I got a job at a big corporation myself, I started to look around and find out more about my company's corporate social responsibility efforts. And I was so excited. It just seemed like the best possible scenario for me. I would still have uh, be able to create some financial stability for myself also be able to benefit from amazing professional development opportunities, but I could also finally get to do some of that good in the world I was so attracted to. And what I realized pretty quickly, it was so heartbreaking, was that, I mean, so this was a huge corporation. There were probably, let's say, 100,000 employees. And in my memory, there were about five people that worked in the corporate social responsibility office. And out of those five people, I want to say three of them were support staff. So of the two employees that were leading the work, they were both older gentlemen. You know, they had been successful in building the business in other departments. And then as a reward, as they approached retirement, they got to do this corporate social responsibility work for the final, like, five years of their careers. And so the... (laughs) Uh, The guidance that I got as a young professional was to continue to grow and to continue to build my skills and build the business. And then in about 40 years, I'd be able to join (laughs) the company's social responsibility efforts. For someone in their 20s, I mean, it was unimaginable to think about waiting 40 years to get to do that type of work. I even went back to school. I got a master's in a field that 100% lined up with the work they were doing. And still the attitude was, no, this is a reward position. You can't jump into it as a young professional. Not that the work required some kind of uh, highly complex skills that I didn't have yet, but that it was a reward for a successful career at the company. So this was the CSR era that I remember. And I remember there being a lot of criticism about how it all just seemed like a big marketing ploy. And I kind of had to agree. I mean, I was shocked when I found out that such a big corporation only had a handful of people working on their corporate social responsibility efforts. And 
especially because of how splashy the marketing was. So I don't think they ever lied about how much they were doing at all. I don't even think they exaggerated. I think the impression was that the scale was just a lot more widespread because when we hear, so here's an example. I I think that we have a challenge sometimes scaling things in our minds. So when we hear that a billionaire has given away $100 million. It sounds impressive, right? $100 million given away. What we fail to really understand because of this scaling issue in our imaginations is that they probably made that much interest in a day, $100 million, you know? So I think it it comes down to that. I think the marketing agencies absolutely know that when we hear that a company is given away $100 million or $100 million, I don't know, products, they the marketing agencies know that that sounds like a lot to us, and they capitalize on it. I think that the criticism for corporate social responsibility just started to grow and grow, and eventually it started to kind of fall out of fashion to brag about your company's social responsibility, um, your corporate social responsibility. And then around that time, I started to hear companies talking about their double bottom line or even their triple bottom line. Does anybody else remember this? So this was all like in vogue at that time. The bottom line for a company historically is just how much profit they earn in a year. The double bottom line or the triple bottom line is where they have another bottom line, which is focusing on our planet and our people. The reasoning being that what a company measures, it will focus on. And so if the ultimate metric for a company's success is just profit, that's going to be the singular focus. But if the ultimate measure of success for a company, you know, is actually profits and also impact on the planet, for example, then that's what they're going to focus on. And I think this was an improvement from the old days of having some CSR office where, you know, about to retire employees were doing the work. I think it's more holistic to say, you know, we have more than one metric for this company's success. I I like that. But I feel like even that sort of fell out of favor in the lingo. And so the sense I get now, and if you're currently in school and at the age where you're starting to scope out your choices and make career decisions, I'd love to know if my observation sounds true to you. My sense is that nowadays, it's sort of a foregone conclusion that, of course, workers and the community in general, we want businesses to reduce the harm to the planet, to do right by their employees, to do right by the community, and not to support crappy politicians, and in general, just to be decent members of our communities. And that, of course, if you're building a business, you want to create it in a socially responsible way. And that goes for nonprofits as well. I've seen a real skepticism about nonprofits, foundations, all of those sorts of organizations where, you know, when I was young, the skepticism was, are they really doing everything they say they're going to do? Or are they wasting money on overhead, for example? Nowadays, the type of criticisms or skepticism that I see about nonprofits or foundations are if they are actually perpetuating the same harms as capitalism or colonialism, etc. So where are we today? 
Uh, what can you do if you're building an organization, whether it's a business or a nonprofit or something in between? Are there any options to try to make an organization that lines up with your values? So let's get into it. And thanks again to the listener who emailed asking for some suggestions on this topic. There's definitely too much to cover today, so we're for sure going to have to pick up some of it on the next part, on the second episode. I think it can be tempting when you're starting an organization to just try to get it up and running and then wait until later to try to instill your values into the way that your organization runs. But I think the issue with that is a lot of founders never really get to that moment where they can take that deep breath and reset and relax and take a step back and think about how to reset some aspects of how they're running their organizations. Usually, from what I've observed, it's a matter of survival for most founders. And by the time you can even take that breath to relax and the organization feels like it's going to survive, it's often very late in the game to try to make changes. Bad habits are very hard to break. It's easier to start the way that you intend to continue. When you think about hanging on during market shocks, when the economy dips, or when something else happens that shakes up your organization, it seems to me that you'll be more likely to hang on to your principles if they were baked into your organization from the very beginning, from the foundation. So from a survivability standpoint of your culture and your values, I want to encourage you to think these things through at the very beginning stages of your startup. To start, I think it's a good idea to understand what your values are, what your priorities are. Of course, you probably care about a lot of issues. You probably care about the planet. You care about workers' rights. You care about social justice. You care about diversity, equity, and inclusion, accessibility. But I want to gently encourage you to consider choosing a more limited scope as you're starting your organization. This is going to help you to focus and communicate your vision to everyone that you bring in. So in order to create an organization where everyone's on the same page in terms of what your values are, you need to be able to very clearly point to exactly what those values are with as little ambiguity as possible. When Google was getting started, their um, rally and cry was, don't be evil. And it seems like it would really help to clarify all the decisions that the company would need to make, but it wasn't specific enough. First of all, what do you consider to be evil? What if your employees disagree with you about what evil means? It's just too vague. And we saw that play out in a lot of different ways with conflicts at Google. So I want to encourage you to start there. What specifically are your values that you want your organization to rally around? And then from there, I think you have some fun decisions to make. I'm going to group them into these categories. There are six of them. Uh, so first category of decisions are going to be about how you structure your organization. Second, your employees. How do you hire them? How do you think about pay, benefits, culture? Um, third is going to be your community engagement. Fourth is going to be your environmental impact. Fifth is going to be governance, which really is just how do you decision, how do you make decisions as a company? And then finally will be customers. So a lot of 
I think, really exciting opportunities to be able to think about how to walk the talk in terms of your values for your organization. In the next episode, let's go through those categories and go through some of the decisions that you can make, which might help to really incorporate those values from the very beginning. So let's pause there for today. I think this is a a great foundation to start our conversation on Um, you and your organization and how you're going to build it in a way that reflects your values. Whether you're creating some kind of a tech startup or you're creating a childcare facility, or even if you're thinking about building other types of organizations. Uh, In the next episode, in the final part of this conversation, we'll go through each of those categories. In the meantime, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this so far, or maybe there's another topic you'd like to hear on the show. You can email anytime, spenddonateinvest at gmail.com. That is where most of the episode topics come from. If you want, you can also check out the backlog of episodes for the show. There's almost 100 episodes. The website is spenddonateinvest.world. Again, that's spenddonateinvest.world. So instead of a .com website, it's .world. If you want, you can also join the newsletter for this show. It comes out about once a month, maybe a little bit less than that. There's absolutely no spam ever. Just like the podcast, the emails are concise, to the point, clear, gentle suggestions. Um, You can join the newsletter by going to the show's website, spenddonateinvest.world, or you can send an email to the show, spenddonateinvest at gmail.com, and you can get added to the newsletter distribution. Either way, I'd love to hear from you. If you want to support the show, the the biggest help that you can provide is to share an episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. It turns out that podcasts still grow by word of mouth. It doesn't really matter if I recommend this show to other people. It recommend it, it matters if listeners recommend the show to other people. So I'd love your support in that as well. All right. Well, talk to you soon. We'll continue this conversation. Have a great day. Let's keep fighting for systemic change. That's obviously what we need. In the meantime, let's see what we can do as people on a daily basis with our money. Let's talk again soon. 